if you don't mind, uh, if, some of you probably need to scoot in a little bit, and there's, there's room on the front. I know nobody, nobody likes to sit on the front. Uh, Chad's literally the only one sitting on this front row. I won't spit on you, I promise. Well, I'll try not to spit on you. I'll move this back a little bit. So you can kind of scrunch if, if, if we need to, if people still need to, to make room to be able to sit. There's some people that are, that are doing that. If you don't know who I am, my name is Dan Ivey. I'm one of the pastors here, and that's kind of a, an old and a new thing. So I've, me and my wife moved back into the country, I guess, close to three months ago now, and are, are on staff serving here um, as one of the pastors alongside Chad and also one of the elders alongside our, our elders. And so uh, just excited to see you, you here this morning, a lot of familiar faces, and then also there's a lot of new folks that are, that are rolling in. So if you're new this morning to our church, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. And um, basically, we're going to continue to lift high Jesus. There was a theme in every one of the songs that we were singing this morning, in case you didn't notice, but it was exalting Christ and who he is, singing praises to him because he's good, because he's worthy of that. And we're going to continue to exalt Christ, but we're going to do it in a way of looking through his word and understanding who is Jesus, more about Jesus, what it means to know him. Why is he worthy of our lives and our worship and, and our lifestyles to be given to him that we would wrap everything in our lives and in, in this church and the people that are members of this church around following Christ as the head of our church? And so we're in the middle, Chad kicked us off last week, kind of in the middle of a series that we're calling Accomplished, the Church of Jesus. And Chad, Chad did a great job as we looked in John chapter 17 last week and just looking at the prayer of Jesus for his followers. So ultimately, the prayer of Jesus for his church, for his body, what the Bible calls the body of, of Christ, that we can be his hands and feet on this earth as we have a living Savior who has risen from the dead and is seated in the heavens at the right hand of God and now using us, his church, people who belong to him, his followers, to proclaim his name and to extend his reign and his glory in this place. So we looked at John chapter 17 and, and really a focus point that I want us to, to look at again is in verse 4 when Jesus is, is saying this prayer to God the Father and he says this, he said, God, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The church, if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus has accomplished salvation for you. Jesus has accomplished the salvation of the church. The existence of the church happened because of the things that Jesus accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So we're looking at a church that Jesus has accomplished, but what kind of church would that be? What is the church of Jesus? What did he really accomplish? What did he pray to the Father that we would be here on this earth in our time? And as Chad looked at that passage and kind of exposed the truths that we see through Jesus' prayers, he looked at three primary and important things is, is one that a Jesus church is centered on the gospel. A Jesus church is centered on the gospel. That a Jesus church is connected as family, that, that Jesus, because of what he has done, he has united us to God as father. And so we're brothers and sisters in Christ and through Christ and the work that he has accomplished. So we're connected as family. And then a Jesus church is commissioned to mission. There's a great purpose for followers of Christ. There's a great purpose for this church on this earth. That's why we've been commissioned by Jesus. We've been sent into the world with a mission to make him known and to bring glory to God through making disciples. So you could say that what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is a gospel-centered family on mission to make disciples for God's glory. 
And so we looked at that. Chad also mentioned one, one super important thing that's going to be just so important. Why would we do a teaching on this? Why would we do a teaching on, on God and Jesus and looking at the focus of what we should do as a church, what we should be as a church, and, and everything that we're studying and looking at is, is the character of Christ, the character of God. Who is Jesus? How does that shape what we do? Because Chad mentioned to us that and some, some terms that are important enough for us to know, and for some of you it's new, and maybe we say these words all the time, we don't know what they mean, but... The theology, we need to know theology. That's the study of God. Who is God? What is his character? What is he like? Christology, which is a more specific focus on the study of God. It's the study of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is he like? What do we know about the truth of who Jesus is? And then Chad mentioned that those things, the study of God, theology, the study of Christ, Christology, when we, when we know that, everything flows from that and shapes what we call ecclesiology. And that's the church. That's the study of the church. What we should be as the church. Who we are. We know who we are in Christ through studying God and his character and studying the work of Christ and what he accomplished. And then missiology, which is the study of the actions of the church. What has Christ called us to be and to do as the church? And as we look this morning on the accomplished church, the church of Jesus, what kind of church that is. And the, the church of Jesus is a submitted church. A submitted church. You know, you, you hear that word. We live kind of in this world where the answer to the question of what is authority and who is your authority in life, man, you could get so many answers for that. You get so many answers for that. And we, you know, it's kind of like some of us think maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but we live in this world. And so it's kind of like, you know, a fish that's living in the aquarium in the fish tank. They don't realize that they're you know, you ask them about being in water and they're like, this is all I know. You know what I mean? They're living, they're breathing, they're taking in water. It's, they're covered in water and it's kind of like we're in this world and we don't realize sometimes how much that the answer to that question and what the world is telling us of what is authority, what that, how that affects us, like a fish in water. Who will I answer to? The popular view, of a humanist view that really, that me as a, as a human being, I'm, I'm my own authority my ideas, my aims, and what I do, the authority of I, is so prevalent. So when you hear this word, accomplish the church of Jesus, it's a submitted church. People who follow Jesus are submitted people, and that's what we're going to look at, and that's the case that's going to be made from the passage of Scripture this morning, and what that means and what that looks like in our life, to submit. That's a word sometimes we cringe at that word. And I looked it up just to get the official definition, and it plays so well into what we're going to talk about as being a submitted church and who we submit to. To submit is to accept or to yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. Submission. And the church of Jesus Christ is a submitted church, submitted to Christ. So as we look at this passage this morning, you can go ahead if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to focus in starting in verse 15 and going through 23, and then I'm also going to pick up verse 28 at the end of that chapter. But the truth we're going to explore, and this passage is going to reveal to us this morning, is so heavy on that Christology, the study of Jesus, and understanding the character of Jesus, the being of Jesus, who Jesus is. And let me just tell you my hope and my prayer all week. For you and the prayer that people came early to pray for you and the seat that you would sit in as you will leave this place so enamored 
by the glory of Jesus Christ. So enthralled by who he is, so focused on how incredible Jesus is, how worthy he is, how beautiful he is, how glorious he is, and how supreme Jesus is. Jesus is supreme overall. That's the premise. It's such a simple truth, but it's so profound and so deep in our lives and and something we have to explore. How in our lives do we show that Christ is supreme? What does it look like to show that Christ is supreme in our lives and in the world and in the church? So let's look as I read Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says, He, Jesus, He's the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Skip down to verse 28. Him, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we look at this truth this morning, that you would be here, God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you. God, not to an action that we need to take, but to you. That we would see you for all that you are, God. Pray that your spirit would be here among us in this room doing what your spirit came to do, convicting of sin and lifting up and glorifying the Son. So be here among us, Lord, as we look at your word. God, teach us and shape us and mold us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of, of background info on this passage in Colossians, because it's important for what, for what we're wanting to, to look at this morning, because here's the premise of what we want to look at. Jesus is supreme over all. Jesus is supreme over everything. And we're going to see how that's, that's really the snowballing argument of this passage. And we get to that, where the point being made, Jesus is supreme over everything. And to show the supremacy of Jesus in our lives means that we submit our lives to him. We submit as the church to Jesus and who he is and, and he, him being supreme. A little bit of background on Colossians. So this is, this is a church that 
Paul is writing to, and it's not, it's not really a direct uh, result of the ministry of Paul, some, some followers of Christ that, that Paul has won to the Lord, they went to this place, they must have went to this place and began to share about Christ and to, to share about who he is and what it means to follow him and others came to believe and a church rose up in this place and they're facing some kind of teaching. A teaching that's strange. It's not in line with the gospel of Jesus and, and what Paul teaches and, and what the Bible teaches us. So some sort of philosophy that Paul would refer to in chapter 2, verse 8 of this book. And it's possible that this teaching, it has something to do with the worship of, of angels or some higher spiritual beings, a, a part of the local kind of tradition that uh, to help us in times of need, to protect us from evil when we get scared, that we call out to these higher beings, that we call out to these angels or, or some kind of superstition possibly, that someone has come and begin to infiltrate this church, whatever it is, from what we know of this, this book and this letter that Paul's writing, it devalues Christ and who he is. It devalues him. It devalues the work that he's done. It devalues his authority in this world and over our lives and over the church. So Paul writes to correct. He writes to correct this view and, and to fan the flame of the gospel to show that, that Christ is supreme in all things, that he is important in all things, and he wants the Colossians to have the right belief about Christ. So it leads to the right practices in their lives and in their church. Right belief leading to right practices in their life and in the church. And this part that, we're, that I just read to you that we look at, it's kind of that 15 through 23. It's kind of a hymn style. It's a poetically written piece about the beauty of Christ that teaches us so much about the truth of who he is. I love this passage because when you look at scripture, just really quick to frame this up for us. When you look at scripture, here's a conviction we need to take. When you start in Genesis... And you see at the beginning, and I'm going to reference this in a second, when, when God says, let us make man in our image, Jesus is there. When we see in Genesis 3, when the serpent comes and deceives the man and the woman, and God's giving the curses to them, he's given the curse to the woman, he's given the curse to the serpent, as Satan had entered into the serpent. He says, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to come and he's going to crush your head, they're talking about Jesus. The plan was in motion. He's always existed. This has always been the plan that redemption would come for his people. And so the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to the end is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's what he will accomplish. Jesus affirmed this in his own life and his own teaching. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to two followers of Christ. They're headed to a road. They're wondering, have you heard about, what do we think about these things? That Jesus has died and rose from the dead and Jesus has fallen along. They don't recognize who Jesus is. But Jesus comes and it says in that verse that from the law of Moses and from all of the prophets and from all of the scriptures. And in Jewish terms, what Jesus is saying, everything you know of the Old Testament, what was your Bible, everything he took that and he ex explained how it was talking about himself. All of scripture from the Old Testament onward is lifting up Christ and the work that he would done. The New Testament's use of the Old Testament affirms that for us. They all take it and they point it to Jesus. So here, one of the pinnacles of the teaching on Christ to clearly understand who he is, all of the Bible is doing that. And then we come to this place in Colossians where it's so focused and so concentrated to know who Jesus is and how we should think about him and that he's supreme over all things and that we value him as supreme when we submit to our his authority in our lives our natural bent our natural bent in our lives and in the church 
It's to devalue Christ. We're right there with the Colossians. It may not be the worship of angels. You may not be a very superstitious person, but there are things in our life that we put in place of Jesus as supreme that devalues the work and the authority of Christ. So we look at this passage, we see how is he supreme? And there's some truths that we can pull out. Jesus is supreme above all things. And and what, as we look through this, and three things I think we can look and we can see. And the first one is this. Jesus is supreme in our world. Jesus is supreme in our world. You look there in verse 15, it's kind of just do a walk through. It says he's the image of the invisible God. There's a reality of God who's moved all of history to this point in time of who Jesus is. He's invisible, he's not seen, but he's active, he's heard throughout history. He's moving, but he's not seen. But in Jesus, the image of the invisible God, we see him. More than an image as we are made, we see in Genesis 1 that man has been made in the image of God, but it's more than this as as we see. And you look further from 15, moving on to 16, where it says that for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That he's the firstborn of all creation. Back before that, in that same verse in 15, what does that mean? We have to to be able to really understand that. We got to think about and change our image of what the firstborn means. When I think of firstborn, I think of my oldest daughter, Paige. She's my firstborn. I think of my older brother, Joseph. He's the firstborn in, in my family. I'm the youngest. Maybe you're a firstborn. Maybe you have multiple children. And, and that's the image that happens when you, when you think you're firstborn. And so with that image associated, what I think of is that there's been a starting point, right? My daughter had a starting point at inception and her entering into this world right down the road at Forest General. That's not the way firstborn be think of in this passage. Firstborn here doesn't indicate that there's any kind of starting point. That'll clearly be revealed as we continue in the passage and look further to the verses. But this firstborn of all creation is understood in terms of rights and privileges. Really the understanding that there's a firstborn in a family, a spiritual family, and that Jesus is the head of that family. He has all the rights and the privileges of inheritance in that family, God's family. He's the firstborn of all creation. You know, when I spent time overseas and Engaging in different cultures, not so much here is that, that emphasis on the firstborn, but in many other cultures it is. As far as rights and privileges and advantages that you have and responsibilities that come with that. So many people that I met that were working so hard because they had the responsibility. Maybe their father has passed and they're the firstborn in the family and they have this responsibility to now be the head of that family and to give direction and to give nourishment and to give provision to that. And that's what it means here when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And that for by him all things were created. That clears it up. That it's not a starting point. It's the us in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. Jesus was there. He was creating all things. The things that we can see on the earth. The things that are visible to us. And the things that we cannot see in the heavens. It says that he's, he's an author. He's creator of that. The things in the heaven and in the earth. The unseen realities. Think revelation. Think the th- throne room. Think God sitting on his throne. And the worship, the worship of the angels that is constantly going on around him. The elders that are falling down. And think... Of what this is saying, Jesus was there. He's created everything, whether in heaven or on earth, the things that we can see, the things that we cannot see. Whether that's throne, dominions, rulers, or authorities in verse 16. What's interesting about this, and this is why we kind of go back to that thinking, maybe, maybe this strange teaching, maybe this strange philosophy had to do something with 
superstition and the worship of angels because when you see these terms together in Jewish history, these are Jewish terms for various rankings of angels. And so remember that issue. Whatever this teaching is, whether it's the worship of calling on other angels or other higher spiritual beings in, in times of need or in times of fear, whatever it is, it's devaluing Christ. And Paul says, no, Christ created those things. In fact, all things have been created through him. And in fact, he's the goal of all creation. Things were created through him and for him, that he is the goal of creation. He's supreme, the point in all things that would be in creation, that they would see him as supreme, that they would worship him. If these angels don't worship me, if these people don't worship me, then what'll happen? Well, there's a time in Jesus' life where that happened, and he said the rocks will cry out. All of creation is pointing towards Jesus as supreme because he's the creator. Things have been created through him and for him. And then it goes on even more, and it says he's before all things. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. The word that we get this, that we end up translating in our English Bibles, that things would, would hold together is... If you take the, the verb form of, of that, or no, if you take the, the other form of that, it's, it's systems. It's the word we get our English word system. So it's like this verb form of systems. We don't really have an English word to be able to do it, like systemizing or, you know, it just didn't, doesn't really work. So we translate it, hold together, that in Christ, all things, all the systems of this world, every system that you can think of in this world, it's being held together. It has been created by Christ. He is literally holding the universe together with the advancement of science we're able to know more about the systems of the world than we have ever been able to know before in any any culture or human history before the systems of this world and it says Jesus is the one who is systemizing things he's the one that's created these systems and he's keeping these systems working and he's holding this universe together the system that allows the trees to put out oxygen the system that allows for condensation and evaporation from the oceans and the skies and the rain coming back and how all that stuff works the system of photosynthesis you remember photosynthesis I don't remember much about it, but I, I remember learning about it in elementary school and in middle school, but it's, and it's complicated, but it's beautiful, right? The system of photosynthesis, the body systems that we have that are keeping us together and holding us together and, and making us to function properly, the cardiovascular, the, the digestive, the nervous, the skeletal system, and all of those systems. The beautiful system and, and what takes place when a little caterpillar goes and he forms his little cocoon around his body and then he, after some time, he bursts forth and he becomes this whole new creation and this new thing is a butterfly that has wings and can fly and can take off. All of the systems of the world, he's holding them together. He's created them. All things have been created through him and for him and he holds all things together. Some powerful understanding of who Jesus is. And then it, it gets to this point. So let's, let's look in 18. He's the head of the body, the church. We're going to come back to that in a second. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And this is key. This is where it's getting summed up. This is where the snowball argument of Christ being supreme and authoritative over everything in this world over everything in the church, over everything in our lives is coming 
that in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, if you have the NIV translation, it, it translates that word in a way that we can understand it in a real solid, uh, accurate way, and it'll say supreme. That in everything, Jesus would be supreme. This word is used one time in the New Testament, and it's right here. It means to be first, to hold the first rank, to be the chief. That in everything, Jesus would be first. He would be supreme. He would hold the first rank. And that is the point that Paul is making. That Jesus is supreme over everything. That that the church in Colossae, everything that they're putting some sort of value on, the angels, the systems, the superstitions, whatever it is for them, Paul makes the strongest point on Christ that he makes in all of his letters in regard to Christ's nature. That he's far above it. He's over it. He's enough. He's supreme. He's first place. He's God. He's not something that we use to get to God. He's not a good luck charm that we put under our bed. He's not a manager of your spiritual issues. He's not just the one who does it for you spiritually among all the other options that people would have. Jesus is supreme in this world over it all. And we honor that. We truly trust that when we submit our lives to him. When we submit our lives to that truth. So Jesus is supreme in this world. I told you I'd go back to it in verse 18, but the second truth we see is that Jesus is supreme in the church. Jesus is supreme in the church. Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. The Bible does a great job already at giving us metaphors and illustrations and understandings on on what it means to be the church. There's so much information in there about that. And one of, one of the favorite ones for the Bible to use, and Paul in particular to use, is that, that the church is a body. And that every time he talks about the church being a body, he talks about Jesus being the head of that body. Now here's what we've kind of come head to understand, because we talk about, you know, the school I went to, I don't know that they call them this much anymore, but we had a headmaster. That meant that he made all the directional leadership, right, within the church. He made all the final decisions within the church. He was the head. You got your coaching staff. Football's, football has so many coaches now that coach all kinds of different things, but you got the head coach. The head coach is, he's looking at all the, the other coaches and how they're working with the players, but he's, he's going to make the ultimate and he's going to make the final decision. And that's the right way to think about this, but there's more to think about the, than that, with Jesus being the head of the church. Because think about the head of your body. The head is the place where, where your brain sits and it's, everything's functioning. It's the CPU of the body. That's where your decisions are being made. But that thing's important, isn't it? You take away the head. It's not just that you can't make decisions. You take off my head. It's not just that I can't make decisions anymore. It's that I can't even be nourished. My blood won't flow. My heart won't beat. My head gives life to my body. It nourishes my body. Jesus is the head of the church. He's in charge with directional leadership, but he's also the heart of the church. He's the one that's giving nourishment to the church. Paul covers everything in this snowballing effect argument. Think about it. He wants to see that Jesus is supreme in this world over everything, but he points this out. He highlights this. He clearly shows it. He wants to point out, hey, he's supreme in the church too. Don't forget about it. Why does he do this? Because we want to forget. 
in our followership of Christ and in our churches, we want to forget that Jesus is the head. He's not only the directional leadership, that what he says goes, not the elder, not the pastor, not the deacon body. Jesus is the head. He gives directional leadership. What his vision is, is is what it is, but he's also the nourishment. He's the thing that feeds us and nourishes us. He's he's the thing that gets the blood flowing, the lifeblood of the church going. The heart of the church beats because Jesus is the head of the church. So if this is true, if Jesus is supreme over the church, if he's the head of the church, what should we be known for? This church is known for a lot of different things. Some of them are funny. I wish that we would always be known that Jesus, when people look at and think about our church, that, man, that's a church that takes the lordship and the headship of Jesus serious. They love Jesus. Jesus is supreme in their lives. Jesus is supreme in that church. And when I think about that and and tying back to John 17 a little bit that that Chad looked at. I think there's some indicators we can look at what we should be known for. If we're really a church that says Jesus is supreme, then what would we be known for? What things would we be doing that shows that we're submitting to Jesus as a church that he really is supreme? And first one's this, we make prayer a priority. If, we were, if Jesus is supreme over the church and we really believe that and we really submit to that, we make prayer a priority. Why? Because we need him. If he's supreme over everything, then we need him. We fully surrender. We submit to our need for him. And the way the Bible says that we do that, the gift that God has given us to show that we really submit our lives to Christ is that we can get on our knees and that we can talk to the God of the universe who is supreme over this world and supreme over all things and that he will hear us and that he will respond to us and that he wants all of the power that rose Jesus from the dead, that he puts that inside of us and that he wants to be a part of seeing that expand across every life that is a part of his church, every life that is a member of the venue church. He wants to display his power in you. He wants to display his power through our, through our church. You connected to John 17. I was thinking, what's the verse I can pull out? And then I was like, duh, the whole chapter speaks to the importance of prayer and how Jesus modeled that. And show that that must be a priority. The whole thing's a prayer to God and it's Jesus. If anybody thinks that they need prayer and it's Jesus who we're learning about. He created all things and all things were created for him. And he spent hours on his knees before the Father. He spent this, this amount of time that we don't know in John 17. Praying for his fathers to the Father. They would be kept and sustained and be unified If Jesus needs to do that, you better believe we need to be doing it. Prayer has to be a priority in the church. John Piper says it this way. Prayer must be central, not peripheral. Because prayer is the means God has ordained for us to receive supernatural help. Without supernatural help, we'll not be able to accomplish the things that God has called us to accomplish He goes on to say, you can grow a church of 30,000 people in America without God. It's easy. What is impossible is to see miracles happen in the eyes being open to love God more than they love anything else. That's a miracle, and only God can perform it, and he is ordained to do it through prayer. What What do we believe God wants to do and is able to do through this church in this community 
and to the nations. What do we believe that we want to see him do? Do we, do we believe that he can radically shape this community and the nations, that we would be able to see people come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life? That's the greatest miracle. Do we, do we believe that that will happen? Do we want to see it happen, church? All the yeses and the amens of the world won't answer that question, but our time spent together in prayer as a church will answer that question. That we would be able to see and display that people are coming from death to life by the baptismal waters. That we would be able to pull this baptism out so often that maybe we have to keep it up here instead of storing it in the basement and using it as storage where there's boxes in the baptistry. So what do we do? What do you do? Maybe as I say that, your heart is is pricked and, and your reaction is to say, what do I do? What do I do to change my life and do something to be a part of that? nothing get on your knees fall to your knees in prayer and beg that God would move through your life and through our church if Jesus is supreme in the church and we submit to that we make prayer a priority second thing we make the word central if Jesus is supreme in our church we'll make the word central Jesus prays this in John chapter 17 starting in verse 16 he said they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them holy in truth. Your word is truth. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. To make the word central in our church, it doesn't mean that we make a manual or a rule book out of the Bible. It doesn't mean that we teach the moralities of the Old Testament and life principles that we find in it. To make the word central in our church means that we preach Jesus in everything from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about him. He fulfills all of the scripture. He completes all of this. He secures every promise that it makes. Jesus repeatedly affirmed from his mouth that the Old Testament, it's the living and active voice of God. And so since he is supreme, since Jesus says this and he's supreme, then we hold this word to be completely inspired as the voice of God, something that is powerful, it's living, it's active, it speaks to us. What's your story? It's been speaking to me truly since I was 14 years old. I can read the same passage that I've read since I was 14 years old and Jesus speaks to me through it. And he changes my heart. And he wants to do the same for us and for our church. And so if Jesus is supreme, we make his word central. We preach Christ. We don't see Jesus as the introduction point to how somebody comes into the church. But he's also the sustainer and the sanctifier of the church. And the, the, the depth that we can understand about Jesus and his gospel and what he's done. He's answering those questions to us. This is the voice of the Lord. It's powerful. This is what Psalm 29 says about the voice of the Lord that we have right here, more complete than they had at this time. The voice of the Lord, it's over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory are you coming to the word are you seeing Jesus through every bit of the word that you look at and allowing him to speak to you if Jesus is supreme in our lives if he's supreme in the church we make his word his gospel central 
Third thing, we make service a lifestyle. We make service a lifestyle. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because the next two messages in this series talk about this, service. The church that Jesus accomplished, the church of Jesus, it's a serving church and it's two parts. It serves the family of God. Jesus prayed for this in John 17, chapter 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity is accomplished through following the example of Jesus in service. We'll talk about that all next week, that the church that Jesus accomplished is a serving church, that we serve the family, we're united as family. I believe that Jesus prayed this prayer for unity because he knew from the generations and the generations on down there would be so much diversity among the body of Christ and he prayed, may they be one. It's not meant to be. And it's because we've stopped serving each other. But not only would we serve the family, but we would serve the world. We would take on the purpose of Christ and what he came to do. This is what John prayed for, or Jesus prayed for in John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, as I came to be sent into the world with a proclamation of your good news and of your kingdom, as you sent me into the world, not to be served, but to to serve others, so I have sent them into the world. We serve the world. If Jesus is supreme as the church, If he's the head of the church and we submit our lives to him and show him as supreme, we'll make service a lifestyle, not an event, not a season of our lives, not an occasion in our lives, a lifestyle. And the last thing, if Jesus is supreme in the church, then we make our purpose his proclamation. We make our purpose, the purpose of our lives and the purpose of the church, his proclamation. That's what Paul's saying when you skip down to to verse 28. He's, he's given this great understanding on the, the supreme nature of Christ and who he is. In verse 28, he says, him, him, Jesus, this Jesus who's supreme, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The purpose of our church to each other as the family and to the world that is outside of us that maybe doesn't know about Christ or they're not united to God through Christ is to proclaim this Christ. Not a lesser version. No, the Colossians 1, 15 through 23 version. He's supreme. Coming to him means submitting everything. Him, this Jesus, this supreme Jesus is our purpose and the proclamation of who he is. Unto what? Not conversion, but maturity. Jesus is supreme in the church. Prayers that we would be known by it, that we would make prayer a priority, that we would make the word central, that we would make service a lifestyle, that our purpose would be his proclamation, the proclamation of this supreme Jesus. And then there's a third truth as we finish out this passage. There's a third truth. And it's this, that as Jesus is supreme in our relating to God. Jesus is supreme in our relating to God. Look with me in verse 19 as we finish out the passage we read. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile 
Things that were separated, they come together. They find reconciliation to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This supreme Jesus, that everything was created through him and for him, he had a purpose, and it was to come and to live a perfect life. It was to die on a cross, to shed his blood. Only a perfect life would satisfy the wrath of God, to shed his blood that we would find forgiveness, that we would be reconciled, that we would be made right with God when all that we deserved was his wrath for the judgment of our sin. That's what Paul talks about. Go on in verse 21. You, he's talking to people in the church. Once you were alienated. You were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the beauty of, there's only one that could do this. The supreme Jesus who is above everything that for people who were alienated from God, people who were hostile in our mind and our thinking towards God, deserving of the punishment of God that through his death, through his sacrificial death on our behalf that he could take us and the power that rose Jesus from the dead and everything that he is, all that supremeness that Jesus is can turn us and say in the eyes of God, make us holy and blameless and above reproach. This is the good news of the gospel. This is seeing Jesus as supreme ultimately when you come to this point of surrender and submission to him to realize that on my own, I'm doomed before God. But I look to someone who is greater than me. I look to someone who has made it possible for my sins to be forgiven. I look to someone who has, has made it possible for me to be a new person, new in my mind, new in my heart. He becomes the head of my life and the head of my body that what he says to do, I do it. Where The things that he wants, the things that he has a heart for, they become my heart. Jesus can do this. He can accomplish it. He's supreme. But to be able to see Christ as supreme you have to be awakened. You have to be awakened to that truth. You have to be raised from the dead. And that's impossible. Trying to submit to Christ without seeing him as supreme, that's religion. If you try to submit to Christ without seeing him as supreme, that'll be, that's religion. It's a giving to God. It's saying, God, I give you something, even if it's my life. And you say, I'm willing to give Jesus my life, but if you're coming without seeing him as supreme, if God has not awakened your heart and your mind to that, then you're saying, I give you something so that you will bless me. I day to day, I try to live by your rules and I try to get your peace in my life by living by your rules. But the Bible speaks of a different gospel. It speaks of a different way of relating to God through Christ. And it's not like that. It speaks as Christ is so supreme, so filling, so worthy, so deserving, so needing of nothing from us, so giving to us, so satisfying for us, so powerful, so accomplished and accredited, so certified that when we see him this way, when we see him as he truly is, we bow. That's the response. We bow, we submit, we treasure, we fixate. We surrender, we love, we throw aside everything else as waste that's not of him or for him. But for that to happen, that's humanly impossible. You can't work yourself up emotionally enough to be able to see that. Think about what the passage says. We're alienated from that reality of Christ. We're hostile 
to the very idea that Christ would be supreme in the authority of in our life. We are dead. For us to see Christ as supreme, it takes the miraculous opening of our hearts by this supreme and all-powerful God. It takes a resurrection from the dead. And there's only one who has ever done that and can accomplish that for us, and it's Christ. He's supreme in our relating to God. And we can be guaranteed that he will go and he will find every one of his children that belong to him, the hardest of hearts, the person who has sat in the pew for 60 to 70 years and has heard this message repeatedly but rejected it all that time, he will find them and he will reveal himself to them. And they will submit to his lordship and he will change their life from that man to the man that's in the most remote, limited access village on the other part of the world who's in his, har- his rice field right now harvesting his rice. He's going after everybody that belongs to him. He's supreme over all things in the world and in our relating to God. And when that God-ordained, heart-opening experience happens and we see Christ as he truly is, a supreme over everything, then that true submission happens. It's a joyful submission. It's a waking up every day and day-to-day, submitting our thoughts and our actions to God because we love him. Because he's worthy. Because he's the best. We're not trying to earn his peace. We have his peace. We don't live our rules to get it. We already have it. We don't live our life trying to get his blessing. We have his blessing in Christ. The fullness of his blessing. Seeing Christ as supreme, it means you know you have nothing to give him. He needs not. He gives all. And all to him we owe. Christ is supreme in our relating to God. He's supreme in the world. He's supreme in our church as the head of the church. And we show his supremacy and his value when we submit our lives to him. I want to close with this this quote as we come to an end. And maybe you're here today and there's so many of you here that you're believers, you love Christ. Christ has awakened your heart to see the treasure of who he is. But as we come to a close and we get ready to take communion and approach Christ and, and thinking about his life and his death, should begin just thinking and examining your own heart right now. Are there any areas of your life? Any areas of participation in this church, in the community of believers, in your heart that you're not sub- submitting to Christ, to his lordship, to his supremacy? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you've been a part of a body of Christ for so long. You've heard these things for so long. But this morning you were awakened. Maybe you've been submitting to Christ, not as seeing his supreme, but you've been experiencing religion. And you feel exhausted. Because how can you live up? How can you joyfully submit to that when you don't see Christ as supreme? and the treasure of your life. And this morning you see him. You need to truly submit to him and say, God, I give it all to you. Jesus, I give it all to you. I see you now. I know you're worthy. I want to experience your true peace in my life. I don't want to think I can earn your peace. I don't want to think I can earn your blessing in my life. I want to experience it. 
this teaching about Christ is unique. Not everyone will be able to accept it. It's unique. Ravi Zacharias gave this quote when he talked about how unique Jesus is and the salvation that he offers. He said, there's only one place in the world where love, forgiveness, and justice come together. The love of God, the forgiveness of God, and that God is a just God who must punish sinners. There's only one place that comes together. Justice was being revealed. Love was being demonstrated. Forgiveness was being offered. And that is on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life because he is what absolute truth, supreme truth really is. Repentance is an anguished moment, but your tears are wiped away with the joy of forgiveness. This truth of Christ's grace is unique. Maybe you need to experience this unique grace today. Would you pray with me? Father, I come and we come and we hear things about how great you are and supreme you are, God, and we know it. When we really see it and know it, it humbles us. To know we have nothing to offer to you. God, thank you for your peace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your blessing that you have accomplished. You have accomplished it for us when we don't deserve it. But I thank you for that grace. I thank you for that mercy, Lord. God, I thank you that you're the head of the church, that you're supreme in the world, God, that whatever's happening in this world, we don't have to fear if we belong to you. You are supreme. All things have been created through you and for you. God, that you're in control of this church and what happens in this church and through our lives. Lord, I pray that you challenge us today. As believers, as your followers, as your children, as your members. To know that fresh and new. To fall on our faces and our knees. To say, we need you, God. We need you to work. We need you to move. Our own striving, our own efforts won't accomplish anything. Only you can accomplish things that are of your kingdom. Only you can accomplish the changing of hearts and lives. Lord, we pray that you do that. I pray that you do that right now in this moment as we respond to you, God. I pray that you'd move among us in the name of Jesus. Amen.